You know that this is like a super provocative question, right? Yeah, I super know. I also know, like, I'm like, oh, this is so imminently reasonable. Like, I would love this, da 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 da. But I also know that, like, I exist in a dream world and I surround myself with, like, incredible decolonial feminists, like, all the time. And so to me, I'm like, yes, of course, this should definitely happen. And I know that, like, I'll talk to the first city official who I talk to will be like, what are you talking about? I'm Chris Chang and Phillips, Edmonton's Historian Laureate, and this is Let's Find Out, a monthly podcast about the history of Edmonton, Alberta. Each episode, I find people with questions about local history, and then we find out the answers together. This episode, the clan query. Curious Edmontonian Rebecca Jade asked, can we get a plaque put up where the Ku Klux Klan used to print their newspaper in Edmonton? It feels like just yesterday that we were talking about racism on this podcast with Bashir's question about public school trustees, but I promise you, we're going to learn some fascinating new stuff in this episode about the paper that the KKK published in the 1930s, about the city officials and the mayor who gave support to white supremacists here, and about, you know, what the point of a plaque is amidst all the other information written on our streetscape. We begin on a slushy day in October in my dining room with Rebecca Jade and a pile of research. Yeah, okay. Where to start? Okay, let's start with you introducing yourself and sure. how you got interested in this stuff. Sure. Uh, my name is Rebecca, and I am an editor of Guts Canadian Feminist Magazine, and I have lived in Edmonton for five years. And I have always just been really, really interested in the way that... Um, like facts about racist history and sexist history and like homophobic history and all these kinds of stuff are like quote unquote lost. I understand them to be actively obscured. And so as a person who lives in Edmonton now, I'm really interested in the kinds of things that have been obscured. Um, and I started reading this book and it gave a bunch of information about the KKK in Edmonton. And I just started becoming really, really interested in it because I was like, I haven't heard any of this before. What book is it? It's called Viola Desmond's Canada, A History of Anti-Black Racism in the Promised Land. So it's about... Um, anti-black racism in Canada specifically and that's so cool because so often the stuff that you learn about black people is all located in the states and like in Canada we have this myth that's like oh we're so like welcoming and we're so multicultural and blah 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 and like as a black person I know that that's not true but it's hard to dig up the history about that because there's so much saturated in the field about like America and its particular history with black people. Hmm. Okay so what did it what did it tell you that intrigued you specifically about the Edmonton racist history, I guess? Yeah, so I read this one particular story that had to do with a group of um, black people who wanted to emigrate to Edmonton in around 1910. And they were led by this Baptist minister whose name was Henry Sneed. Um, and they were taking the train up from Oklahoma and they were going to arrive in Canada by way of Winnipeg. And then they wanted to continue on to Edmonton and just found their own farming community uh, because they were finding Jim Crow laws in the, in Oklahoma, like too abhorrent, like it was too difficult to deal with. They'd heard all this like propaganda about Canada. <laughs> um, but they were coming here and a bunch of people in the prairies specifically got wind of the fact that this group of black people was trying to immigrate to Canada by way of Winnipeg and finally landing in Edmonton. And 
um, people freaked out. There were all these like newspaper articles saying, you know, we don't want any dark spots in the prairies. Um, and in Edmonton specifically, there was a lot of really, really org like really intense organizing that happened in a lot of the really official um, like city environments saying we don't want these people here. We don't want black people to come to Edmonton. Edmonton is like a safe white haven. Like we don't want black people here. So, for example, um, the organization that precedes the Edmonton Chamber of Commerce, which I think at the time was called the Edmonton Board of Trade, if I'm remembering correctly, they wrote this really intense letter to like the um, minister for the national minister for immigration at the time saying like, please stop black people from coming here. Um, and this other organization that actually still has a chapter in Edmonton today called the Daughters of Empire. They're like a philanthropic organization for women. Um, they wrote a petition saying, you know, like if these black people come here, like all these women will be in danger and we are such valuable members of the community. Like we don't want it to be in danger all this stuff and as a result of the particular um, activism that people in Edmonton did a whole series of anti-black immigration laws were put into place in Canada and they remained in place until the 1960s at which point a lot of them were struck down and the interesting thing about them being struck down is it occurs at the same time as um, white women were gaining access to the workforce and so as white women gained access to the workforce all of a sudden there was all this like domestic and reproduction labor that needed to be done and white people in Canada said like oh my gosh who can we get to like take care of our babies and clean our houses and who can we pay for super cheap oh I know black women and that's when a whole bunch of like black women from the Caribbean were allowed access to Canada and that is in fact when my grandmother moved to Canada that's when my grandma moved to Canada there you go well, in the 70s <laughs> yeah in the 70s exactly so it's really incredible to be able to put these histories together and be like oh my god like this is making so much sense like holy moly I'm so glad to be learning about this and so in doing this reading I also learned that in Edmonton at the time these kinds of attitudes were very, very common, of course, evidenced by the fact that these really official like city organizations were able to put these ideas forth. But also I learned that Edmonton was the home of the widest circulated KKK magazine in Canada at the time, and it was called The Liberator. But in this book, that's the only detail that they gave. So I got really curious and I was like, oh my gosh, like this sounds like something that would make an incredible historical plaque. I want people walking around downtown, which is where I assume the magazine's headquarters were. I want people walking around town, downtown to like know about this and I want them to know that anti-black racism like has always had a history in Alberta and at one time it was like extremely, extremely sanctioned. Yeah, um, it's a really interesting question. I, I think I, I, I'm interested in your question of whether <laughs> black can be put up there for a couple of reasons. One is like I also hadn't heard about a lot of this KKK history in Edmonton um, and I think it's good to get people talking about it and remembering it but also i think the plaque application process is really interesting um and um we're gonna find out more about it today um but uh i i wanted to show people what it takes to get a plaque made in edmonton and also kind of have a conversation about like what plaques are for and what kind of place they they play in how we remember stuff yeah, I totally, totally agree. So I'm really like, I've always been a person who's really adept at navigating those kind of bureaucratic structures. And I'm a very stubborn person. And so I'm so happy <laughs> to have your support in, you know, like getting kind of cranky about the fact that, you know, you can live in a city for so long and you can feel the effects of racism as a person of color. Um, and to be able to find out these really, really tangible things that are, you know, about your family history and about all these things. Uh, because I don't think that my grandmother knows the context of the kind of like 
political movements of how and why and when she was permitted to move here and also the environment that she was moving into you know like she was allowed into Canada not because Canada is this welcome welcoming multicultural place but because Canada had a really specific idea about what role she could fulfill and when she moved here she started doing seamstress work and that's what she's done for the rest of her life your grandma's from she's from Jamaica Cool. My grandma's from Guyana. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, she came over with my grandpa and um, my mom and my aunt, too. Yeah, so my grandma came over and then she saved up enough money and then my mom came and they lived in Toronto for a long time. And now home is Ottawa. My family also came through Toronto. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's too funny. Yeah. 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 Oh, <laughs> but you're not going to find that out on Ancestry.ca, are you? No, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, um, so I found just some things that I thought you might find interesting. Um, um, I had a hard time finding an exact figure on circulation of the Liberator. Um, I read somewhere that it had a circulation of 250,000 at one time. That's the number that I read too. Yeah, that is the number that I read. But then I'd also read that like that number came from J.J. Maloney, um, who was the founder of the paper. Um, mm. So I wonder how accurate that is. And then... Um, some self-aggrandizement may be happening in that situation, like, oh, we're a really big and important paper kind of situation, right? Yeah, I mean, the other part that made me skeptical of that number is I couldn't tell if he was counting individual issues that he'd passed out or people that he'd reached. Um, Statistics are complicated. Yeah, yeah, we need to understand how those numbers were created. Yeah. I pulled out some letters that we found at the City of Edmonton archives from 1932 and 1933. They were in the file for the Edmonton Exhibition Grounds, now known as Northlands. Um, okay, so J.J. Maloney, um, the publisher of the newspaper and also kind of the head of the KKK in Edmonton in the 1930s, um, I found some interesting stuff um, kind of about his group it, uh, that, that I thought you might be interested in. Um, the first thing was uh, the KKK applied twice to have a picnic in Edmonton at the Edmonton Exhibition Grounds and to have a fiery cross burning. And both times they were their application was approved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting here with my hands on either side of my face. Okay, so this is a letter from July 16th, 1932 from the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, this is from Harold Wright, who calls himself the Imperial Kligrap and Kligel. <laughs> Goofy. It's so tragic. Oh my god. Yeah. This is addressed to the mayor and commissioners, City of Edmonton. Gentlemen, the Ku Klux Klan will hold a convention in the City of Edmonton August 6th to 8th inclusive, and as part of proceedings will hold a demonstration on August 8th, at which, among other features of the program, an open-air initiation will be held, during the course of which a fiery cross will be burned. As admission fee is to be charged, it has occurred to us that the exhibition grounds, on account of being fully enclosed, would be a desirable place to hold this demonstration. So basically, it's like a great place to take tickets because um, people can't get in and out without paying. As we understand the grounds are not being used for other purposes on the state, we would be glad to know if we could arrange to hold the demonstration there. An immediate reply would be greatly appreciated. Yours very truly, Harold Wright, Imperial Kligrap and Kligel. Um, so then there, he gets a letter back from Daniel Knott, the mayor in 1932. Uh -huh. um, dear sir, this will certify that the commissioners have granted the Ku Klux Klan the use of the grandstand and racetrack enclosure at the exhibition grounds on August 8th for the demonstration purposes. This permit is granted on the understanding that no smoking will be allowed on the grandstand. <laughs> okay, 
Okay, okay. So no smoking, but you can totally burn a giant fiery cross. No problem. Go for it. Exactly. Yeah. The letter, like the fire, fire safety seems to be a, like the major concern. Yeah. Um, uh, also that the fire marshals will be allowed to be present to safeguard the property and that the grounds will be cleaned up after you're through with them at your expense or that the city will be remunerated for the expense of doing so. It is understood that if the fiery cross is burned, it will be in the center enclosure at sufficient distance from the buildings that they will not be endangered by fire. Hoping that this is satisfactory to you, I am yours truly, Daniel K. Knott, Mayor. So what's incredible about that is you can note that it was actually profitable for the city to permit terrorist groups to gather and demonstrate and organize and be really active because it was like oh great you'll pay us for the use of our grounds like no problem yeah yeah um the next year they apply again um there's so this what i'm what we're looking at is letters uh to and from the kkk and the city and also like internal correspondence Mm -hmm. um the city of Edmonton archives keeps records of internal correspondence which is kind of cool that's super cool yeah so this was all in a file uh related to the edmonton exhibition grounds and there's like a letter from the chief constable in 1933 talking about this new application for the picnic um a layer from the city engineer uh, a letter from the deputy mayor and then i i find the most fascinating letter from 1933 when the kkk again applied to have a fiery cross burning at their picnic at the edmonton exhibition grounds um (laughs) was that the fire chief basically said um he's writing to the city commissioners at the city of edmonton um and he's saying uh gentlemen i wish to point out that on the last occasion this organization held a picnic in the same premises fiery crosses were burned while not interested in the clan or its doings yet as fire chief i think it right to call attention to the danger of any fire being lit on the exhibition grounds it is contrary to the city bylaws and in the event of there being a high wind the danger of fire would be very great and as you know the exhibition buildings are frame structures thus increasing the hazard so he he objects to the event not because they're the clan um but that uh not because black people are people but because fire is dangerous yeah yeah fascinating stuff okay (laughs) so there are like several interesting layers to this i think um one is that the kkk i've discovered in the 1930s was targeting different stuff than they target now Mm -hmm. um specifically roman catholics were one huge target um and another thing is that uh the kkk in emerson actually was like had some role in this particular mayor becoming elected um yeah okay so this is super interesting um so the liberator is the newspaper that we're talking about um so this book uh that i found this legislature library the ku klux klan in central alberta Mm -hmm. by william peter bergen um who's unfortunately passed away otherwise he would have been really interesting to talk to Mm -hmm. um he found um a copy of the liberator uh from the 1930s uh, advocating against the previous mayor in Edmonton, um, Mayor Douglas, okay. arguing that Douglas had been catering to the Roman Catholic Church. This is an issue of the Liberator from November 1931. Um, elections at that time were held in November in Edmonton. Okay. Um, they were held annually. Okay. So um, Mayor Douglas caters to R.C. Church, goes out of his way to please Rome. <laughs> <laughs> How dare he? <laughs> Electors in the city of Edmonton will go to the polls on Remembrance Day to drive from public office certain ones who have been following the idea prevalent in the minds of local politicians that they cannot win victory at the polls unless they bow their knee to the magic of Rome. 
<laughs> Mayor Douglas, the son of a Protestant minister and a member of a faith that upholds the Sabbath day, attended, attended a Roman Catholic affair on a Sunday night held at Father Tessier's church, and there in the midst of that number of people made a political speech, at which gathering a Roman Catholic spokesman and a French Canadian at that, made the remark that Mayor Douglas should be returned by acclamation. Um, so he goes on, he's, he's basically mad that the mayor chose to go to this Roman Catholic event in Wainwright that yeah. night instead of going to the Masonic Lodge in Edmonton. Yeah. Um, and like, the, so I'm laughing as a defense mechanism, but I'm also laughing because one of the things that I think about so much is like the kind of hatred that people perpetuate onto other people, I think is like 99% of the time this really maladaptive coping mechanism for feeling like really insecure and like your power isn't real and like really slighted all of the time. And so the fact that he's having this like temper tantrum over the decision that like a public elected official made about like one event one night is just like, you're a toddler, you're a toddler. <laughs> you have to be the center of attention at all times yeah yeah and i think that's something that white people do to this day to be honest <laughs> i don't know if you can say that but like <laughs> i said it not you <laughs> back on okay the end of the liberator article here yes. um is he they're advocating you know, they're, they're saying that this mayor um, has his priorities all wrong. Yes. Thus, while we're not out to elect anyone, we're out to defeat the present mayor, and it would be well for the city to remember the motto of the Orange Order, equal rights to all and spe special privileges to nobody. Um, and the Orange Order is a, a Protestant order, which yes. still exists in Edmonton, and there is an Orange Lodge still yes. in Old Strathcona. Sure is. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so after that, editorial came out. I don't know how much impact that had, mm -hmm. um, but Mayor Douglas was actually defeated. Yes. Um, and then Daniel Knott was actually elected by a majority of 3,445 votes. Okay. And... Um, what was the population of Edmonton at that time? Do you know? Ooh, I don't know. Okay, that's okay. Um, it's in uh, Ku Klux Klan in Central Alberta. It says in the heaviest polling recorded in Edmonton civic collection oh, history. Okay. So they really stoked the fires of paranoia on that one and lots of people turned out to vote. It may have been related to them, but also like it's hard to know how much impact the KKK had at that totally. time. Um, uh, uh, however, in celebration, apparently, a gigantic fiery cross was blazed on the south bank of the Saskatchewan River on Connors Hill late that night. <laughs> Oh my god. Yeah. So that's the mayor that was writing back the following year saying, sure, have a picnic burn across at the Edmonton no Exhibition Grounds. No wonder they grounds. wanted him elected. Yeah. I don't know. I, 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 it's, it's, there are so many things going on. It's like, yeah. it's hard to know exactly what everybody's motivations were, but. Correlation, not causation, of course. But what a correlation and also what a result. Also, in terms of government sanctioning of the KKK at that time, um, this book had some really fascinating stuff about Premier Brownlee, okay. um, who was Premier around that time. Um, apparently, the KKK had a bit of trouble with their application uh, to get a certificate of incorporation to become a legal entity. Okay. Um, but Premier Brownlee intervened to make sure that it happened. And um, Thanks, honey. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> not only that... Um, he contributed money to J.J. Maloney, the head of the KKK at that time. Um, wow. Yeah. So uh, I find that really interesting. Yeah. Anyway, all that kind of demonstrates what the Liberator was all about at the yeah. time. I and I think um, it really helps to illustrate that 
the narrative that I read in the book that I was reading does not stand alone. You know, there's this real tendency that we have, I think, like looking back in history to say like, oh, that was just a one off, like, oh, da, 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 da. But what we've really demonstrated here is that there was a really like solid, supportive environment for this work. Yeah, there was. Um, and it is work. Like, this is not happy accidents. This is, like, people actively campaigning to accomplish specific things at the expense of other human beings. Yeah. A very particular model of, of what Canada should be. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And what Edmonton should be and what Alberta should be, of course, because those are, like, white supremacist inventions, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, my question, I guess, uh, my next couple questions for you are, like, what specifically made you want to get a plaque put up as a way of remembering this history? I think that there's a couple things. One, I recognize that, unfortunately, for better or for worse, we exist in a system in Canada where the written word and where, like, really physical monuments are really valued as pedagogical tools. Tools for teaching? Tools for teaching, yes. Um, and so I think that having highly visible, highly accessible written documentation acknowledging and atoning and taking accountability for histories that are largely inaccessible. Like for example, like not everyone has the ability to sit down and like dig through the archives and not everyone has the ability to like read and research on their own time and all these kinds of things. Um, so having really accessible information and really like written information is a really, really important thing. Um, and I think the other thing too is that so often plaques are used to continually actively distort history, right? So we see plaques that, um, like continually like erase the presence of like the Papa Chase decree on this land, you know, like uh, and we have monuments that pretend that like indigenous people and white people and like other settlers like lived happily side by side when in fact like that is not the case. And so I really, really value the use of public monuments to like undo the terrible history that original public monuments were put into place to do. And I also think that there's real value in terms of like, you know, downtown is a highly trafficked area. People walk around down there and or like people walk around downtown and people see things. And I think that anyone who walks around downtown should know the history of the city that you live in. You know that this is like a super provocative question, right? Yeah, I super know. I also know, like, I'm like, oh, this is so imminently reasonable. Like, I would love this, da 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 da. But I also know that like, I exist in a dream world and I surround myself with like incredible decolonial feminists like all the time. And so to me, I'm like, yes, of course, this should definitely happen. And I know that like, I'll talk to the first city official who I talk to will be like, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, everyone that I've talked to, even that I'm researching this, they're like, why are you holding this KKK book? Like, why are you talking about this? Stuff? Yeah. Well, and I think that this question, like, why are you talking about this? Why don't you forget it? It's like, no, I will not because there's always historical precedent. And so I see, you know, for example, people doing incredible work in Edmonton around the Make It Awkward campaign. And it's like, this is a moment in history it has precedent. Like there's a reason that pe that settlers in Edmonton feel that they have the right to yell things like that at black people in public. Yeah. And I think it's important to ground our understanding of the presence in a really solid understanding of the past and obscuring it and trying to forget it is not a way of memorializing appropriately. It doesn't do honor to, you know, like the many gendered foreparents 
of our hearts who have like lived here and fought here and like tried to exist here like peacefully and I am just really really invested in like honoring those pasts and holding people accountable into the future. In my head when you said four parents I heard one two three four parents but I'm realizing (laughs) that you meant f-o-r-e four parents. Correct yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So we're gonna go meet Barbara Hilden from the Edmonton Historical Board um, who actually helps approve plaques and we're gonna see if we can get a plaque um, made for this site. Let's find out! We hopped in my car and drove downtown to meet Barbara. In the Henderson's directory from 1933, there's an entry for the Ku Klux Klan at number 15, 10105 100th Street. In the 1932 Henderson's, there's an entry for the Liberator in the same building. It says, Liberator, J.J. Maloney Editor, 13, 10105 100th Street. Unfortunately, that building doesn't exist anymore. That address is just a parking lot now, between the Weston Hotel and the World Trade Center. If you're ever in trouble picturing it, it's a block south of the Stanley Milner Library, and a block north of the Hotel McDonald. One kind of interesting thing about that geography, so back in the 1910s, the Edmonton Board of Trade was one of the local organizations that asked the federal government to stop black people from immigrating to Canada, right? Eventually, they changed their name to the Edmonton Chamber of Commerce. And the Edmonton Chamber of Commerce is in the World Trade Center, right beside where the Liberator used to be published and the KKK had an office. I'm sure people there today have no idea about that history, but the juxtaposition gives you pause. The Liberator was published from about 1930 to 1933. It folded around the time the local Ku Klux Klan leader, J.J. Maloney, was chased out of town. So we park under the library, and we start walking down the street to meet Barbara. And we pass a mural on the side of a building. You've probably seen it before. And Rebecca turns to me and says, this demonstrates perfectly how the messaging on Edmonton Streetscape just does not speak to her experiences. So the other day when we were on the phone, we were talking about what time we were going to meet and the logistics of meeting. And when I got off the phone, Uh, I had been, I was on the bus and a man cornered me and he said, hey, you know, you just said your address and now I could stalk you if I wanted to. And he was, you know, like really up in my business and had cornered me on the bus and I could sense, you know, I was feeling very threatened. And so I just said, you know, thanks for the reminder. I'll be more careful next time. And then he kind of came up to me closer and rubbed my arm a little bit. And he said, you know, I'm just teasing you. Don't worry about it. And it just made me feel like, I'm very surveilled when I move around in the city and there's a there's a billboard <laughs> that we're standing under right now that's huge and in giant letters it says take a risk it's the most Edmonton thing that you can do and I think that a lot of the time the people who have been benefited by racist histories think oh taking a risk like that's this really incredible thing uh, you know it's associated with like Protestant work ethics and it's associated with this very like Anglican and like proper way of being in the world and it's about enterprise and about working hard and about succeeding but what these people don't realize is that there are people who absolutely take risks every single day in Edmonton and that's not risks about like you know 
their monetary wealth or about their reputation, it's risks about their life. I get stalked downtown all the time and when I tell people to leave me alone, they yell names at me. And so the idea of having a plaque that accounts for the ways that the history that I live every single day has been very intentionally constructed at my expense is a really attractive option for me and that's why I care so much about this project. Something that recognizes what your actual experiences are? Yeah, exactly. What people's lived experiences are and how there are very real and very intentional discrepancies in them and people need to recognize that and stop. Hey, how's it going, Barbara? We find Barbara and walk over to the parking lot where the building used to be. Um, yeah, well, why don't we start? Uh, I don't know if this is the best place to stand. Maybe let's stand over there in the doorway. Uh, in the slush. Luckily, it's not snowing right now. Rebecca sums up her question for Barbara. So, Graciously, Barbara has <laughs> offered her expertise as someone on the committee that approves um, plaques, uh, the plaques and awards committee, right? Um, do you mind introducing yourself and kind of uh, what you're all about on the board? So, um, Barbara Hilden, I'm the current vice chair of the Edmonton Historical Board. I am the past chair of the Heritage um, Historic Resource Review Panel, which is the committee that evaluates and then approves buildings for designation. And I am the current chair of the plaques and awards committee, which um, is the committee that accepts public nominations for um, individuals who are meriting a, an award for protecting, preserving, and promoting Edmonton's history, okay. and also buildings that um, we write and research the plaques for buildings that have been designated okay. under that historic resource review panel. Right, okay, cool. Such a pleasure that you're here with <laughs> us today. I so appreciate oh, it. I'm so, I'm so glad to be here. It's such an interesting, interesting conversation. Mm -hmm. I think most of the work that the historical board does, and I should add that the historical board is not an activist group. We are a board that advises city council. Of course. Um, so most of the work that we do tends to center on built heritage in some form or another. So evaluating buildings for designation, integrity, significance, those kinds of things, and then attaching the plaques to those physical built structures. There hasn't been a lot of work in capturing stories, which is something as a board we've talked about wanting to do more of. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think a conversation like this is so fascinating. Yeah, so I'm glad to be part of it. Cool. And I j like I just think it's like such a cool opportunity because like while I understand that like you, you know the building is no longer here, in many ways I'm so curious about the you know history is like a thing that is constantly being constructed. History we understand is about stories integrally, mm -hmm. and it's easier to erase stories when material objects associated with those stories are no longer present. And so it becomes very easy to create and recreate and obfuscate histories when there are no material objects associated yeah. with them. And so this is so much about, you know, if we acknowledge that history is integrally associated with material objects and so often our history making is about only the stuff that's left over because it's the history that we want to hear. That a certain group wanted to yeah, hear a certain, at a certain time. Yeah, that a certain group wanted to hear at a certain time, you're absolutely correct. What can we do materially to ensure that histories that have been actively tried to be erased are also remembered materially? And restored, and that's part of that restoration and reconciliation in a lot of different forms. Exactly, yeah. All right, so for this particular site, there is no building, there's just an in-park um, parking lot. So and what, Ruth's Chris Steakhouse <laughs> sign. And a Ruth Chris Steakhouse <laughs> sign. Um, so Barbara, what's your take? What's, um, wh what's, yeah, what's your take on this? I think it's a fascinating conversation that I'd like to find a way for the board to be part of. Currently, we're not, um, really. I mean, most of our focus is on 
built heritage and in some cases lost heritage to the um, Edmonton's architectural history website was a board initiative a couple of years ago and it, it, cap- it does capture some of those stories. It really focuses on the buildings, the architects, what purpose the buildings served, but something like this building, which I, you know, I don't know if we have any photos of it. It would be really interesting to go and look through some of the archives and see if there are any photos of this building or plots of this building in the land and yeah. when it was demolished and back to why. I mean, it wasn't obviously taken down to be replaced by a massive infrastructure. Yeah. Um, they paved KKK Paradise and put up a parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and, you know, other cities have... have grappled with this question too. Berlin is a really fascinating example of a very recent history and sites that have been associated with that history that are are gone Um, and the way Berlin has chosen to commemorate and recognize and not recognize and do so in a way that doesn't become a focal point for unsavory elements today to exactly. find a place to continue those sentiments. Yeah. That's, that's actually one of the things that people have said to me when I've kind of been just mentioning what I'm working on this month for this podcast is people saying like, well, what if a, a plaque here becomes like a gathering point or rallying point for a modern mm-hmm. iteration of the KKK? Yeah. And I think, I think that's a, a concern. It's not a reason not to do it in my opinion. And I should probably clarify that there are times when I speak for the board and there are times when I speak as me. Yes. Um, and right now that's my opinion that I, that's not, that shouldn't be a reason to not capture these stories and um, commemorate them and help move past them. And I think the other thing too, is like, we understand that like racist operations continue in Alberta, regardless of whether there is a plaque apologizing for them and bringing those issues to the forefront and making hitherto neutral parties aware of them. Um, And so I think that the work of making people aware is also the work of trying to make sure that KKK gatherings stop in Alberta. I think it can come down to how it's done, how it's memorialized, and and in some cases it's a question of language and who's using the language and how it's being drafted and written and reviewed and all of the various groups that need to have a part of that. It's not something one person does in a room and approves and puts up. It's a a communal discussion. Yeah, absolutely. So so how would Rebecca go about getting a plaque put up here? It's really interesting. Um, At the moment, I'm not sure. As I said, we tend to deal with built heritage and buildings, and there isn't a building here. Um, I think the first place to do it would probably be on that website because then we can talk about some of the lost spaces and talk about what it is now and talk about the building itself. Um, And it would be interesting to see what we can find out about the building. So I think there's probably some research to do um, at the city archives with the the amazing archival staff there and find out more about the building, what happened to it, when when it was built and and what kind of style and all of those kinds of things, all of the various functions that it served um, to start doing some research in that direction. And then, yeah, my first suggestion would be that we we look at it on as a a story for the website, and that as a I go back to the board and talk about the continued need to to find a way to recognize stories that yeah. have been the stories that have been lost and buildings that have been lost and capturing those stories. Yeah, this sounds like kind of a long term type thing. It's a city board; nothing happens really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what? Like, who takes the next step then? Um, um, I think I do, and okay. I think what I would like to do is invite Rebecca to come to one of our upcoming board meetings and um, chat a little bit about the project and why you're passionate about it and the the reasons for it. Cool. 
What do you think about that? I am like totally willing to take that on and I'm a very uh, comfortable and competent letter writer so if I need to write a letter to the board explaining myself to kind of validate your invitation of me to come and talk I would be delighted to do so. I think Um, the board would would be really happy to have you come and talk. I have been to some of the Edmonton Historical Board meetings and I uh, if it was this month, I can't. But if it's next month, I totally could, and I'd love to. Um, I was just going to say, like, I, I bet everybody would appreciate having a little spice in the conversation. I think so, too. I think it'd be great. I think it'd be really... I mean, everyone on the board is passionate about history in some fashion. We've got a wide mix of um, heritage professionals and engineers and students in some cases. So um, I think everybody, including the heritage homeowners who are there for their love of old buildings, mm-hmm. also love the stories that are attached to those so i think everyone would love to hear firsthand from a story that we don't talk about brilliant uh, cool awesome wow Yay! cool <laughs> we found out we found out <laughs> yeah. we did do you have any other questions no i don't think i do okay cool i have one more question please if if the if the machinery kind of moves too slowly for you or they say no what what are you gonna do I am pretty adept at kicking up a fuss. (laughs) I've kicked up a fuss about stuff before. And I mean, to be honest, like, if for whatever reason there's, you know, concern about, like, this site, then there are other sites. You know, we were discussing the fact that, what was the cross burning on... Connors Connors Hill. Um, uh, When Mayor Mayor Knott was elected, um, in celebration, apparently, the KKK lit a fiery cross on um, the south side of the river there. Yeah. Or, you know, if this site isn't 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 adequate for whatever reason and that site isn't adequate, you know, like there are loci of racism everywhere in Edmonton. Unfortunately, that's true. (laughs) I think, you know, one of the other things that the board has done recently, um, the Alex Dakota Park that's being unveiled in um, downtown, we were approached about putting a plaque up for that park and it didn't fall directly under our mandate for built heritage because there are no buildings there that are associated with Alex. um, But what we managed to do was take some of the research that we had conducted when we awarded him a posthumous award, um, I think in the mid-90s, um, and turned that into an interpretive plaque. Yeah, So you know, it's, it's not a commemorating a building, it's, but it's explaining who he was and why this site is significant. And I think this might be another one of those examples where it's a matter of sharing the information and the story and acknowledging, even if it isn't attached to a four-sided building. I absolutely agree, yeah. Cool, okay, thanks guys. No, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. So we set out to learn whether we could get a plaque put up where Edmonton's clan used to publish their newspaper, The Liberator. We found out from the Edmonton Historical Board's Barbara Hilden that they mostly do plaques for buildings that are still standing, and this one's been torn down. But they'd be interested in trying to find a way to get one put up at this site. Rebecca agreed to go to one of their board meetings to present her case. It looks like the first step will be to research the building and write about it on the Edmonton's Architectural Heritage website. On the one hand, this is more committal than I expected anybody from the board to be. Having physical markers of the KKK history in Edmonton, I expected that to take a lot more convincing. On the other hand, these wheels are going to move slowly. Rebecca and I initially thought we'd be able to go to the November board meeting to present this. It looks like it won't be till January now. A lot of people would get discouraged or lose interest having to wait so long. And important discussions about history would be missed. I don't think Rebecca's the type to get discouraged easily, though. Just a hunch. Thanks for listening to Let's Find Out. I love hearing what you guys think of the show, and I want your questions about Edmonton history. 
drop me a line at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. You know, even if I'm not the right person to answer them, sometimes I can forward you on to the right person. You can listen to the first three episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and letsfindoutpodcast.com. And thank you to everybody who's left a review in iTunes. If you haven't done it yet, do you mind heading there and leaving a review for this show? I have a good feeling that we're going to crack into that new and notable section. Okay, thank you, time. Thank you to Rebecca Jade and Barbara Hilden for speaking with me. Thanks to the folks at the City of Edmonton Archives and the Legislature Library for their help researching the Liberator for this episode. Thanks to the Edmonton Historical Board and the Edmonton Heritage Council for supporting this podcast, and to everyone else who's been supporting it, especially Finn. The book that got this conversation started is Viola Desmond's Canada by Graham Reynolds. The book where we found an article from the Liberator was William Peter Bergen's The Ku Klux Klan in Central Alberta. Original music for this podcast is by the lovely human being, Doug Hoyer. Artwork for our logo by Andrea Hergy at Mount Pioneer Design. And hey, here's a cool thing. If you're hearing this before November 6th, 2016, I have a temporary replacement being me on Facebook. Since I was headed out of town on vacation, I asked this wonderful archaeologist and U of A professor, Keisha Supernant, to take over the Historian Laureate Facebook page for a couple weeks. So check it out. And hi, Keisha. All right, that's it for this month. I'm Chris Chang and Phillips. And until next time, keep your questions coming. <laughs>